Hi, I'm Tom Flynn. I'm Lori Feathers. And welcome to Lost in Redonda. Hi, Lori. How are you doing today? Tom, I'm well. How are you? How's the uh, final days of uh, kids not back yet to school um, working with you? Oh, yeah, we're working with it. We're uh, <laughs> we're doing what we can. <laughs> um, yeah, next week they're they're back, which seems I don't know. I don't I don't feel like I went back that early. Maybe I did. Um, they never used to. That's a, a recent thing in Chicago. Um, but the school's air conditioned. It'll be fine. They'll be fine. They're not thrilled and trying to pretend like it's not happening, but you know, that's just how it goes, I suppose. But you might be more ready than they are. Um, there are things that I'm going to be able to do that I've not been able to do <laughs> all summer long. I'm sure. And, um, my time will be my own in some very significant ways. That will be. I am very much looking forward to that. So, yeah. I won't be it won't be too tearful of a of a sending off uh, next Monday. Um, so today uh, we are tackling volume two of Your Face Tomorrow, Dance and Dream. Um, yeah, so again, I'm just a, a reminder. Uh, this one was published uh, a couple years after um, Volume One came out, um, and then the final volume, uh, Poison Shadow and Farewell, came out a couple years after that. So. My experience of it uh, was reading Fever and Spear and then having to sit for a couple of years waiting for the next one to be translated and, and come out. And I started to read uh, volume two and immediately realized I needed to go back and quickly skim some passages out of uh, volume one because um, I couldn't remember what the hell was going on, who this person was that was selling as doorstep. Um, but you're getting a, a much uh, much more streamlined uh, experience of it, Lori. Yeah, um, I guess a fresher perspective, perhaps. As I um, noted in our last recording, um, I had read Volume 1, Fever and Spear, maybe like 18 months ago. And then I decided that I was going to read these, you know, consecutively for this project. Um, and so I went back and I fully reread Volume 1. Um, that was a great experience and then, um, jumped right into this one and, and read it, I guess, like in a little less than a week. So a pretty intensive reading experience for me. Um, and it was, it was in some respects what I expected in other respects. It wasn't, um, there was much less of, um, uh, Peter Wheeler's voice in this. I mean, his voice echoes in this book, but um, in terms of having a setting or a situation where Wheeler is there or telling more of his story, and especially the story about his wife, which I'm dying to learn. Hopefully I'll get to that in volume three. I sure do hope so. But yeah, he's kind of uh, a bit absent from this volume. He does show up uh, mostly in repetitions of what he said in volume one. There isn't very much at all added on to it. Maybe a little bit of, um, uh, maybe a little bit more English 
uh, put on the spin, put on um, Deza's thoughts of him and how he feels about about him, about Toby Relands. I mean, there is a somewhat fun scene where uh, Deza expands upon the afternoon lunch they had uh, the morning, the day after the party that um, he attended, where they're going on and on about the more Deza's rather going on and on about the blood stain that he found on the stairs, and 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 that actually serves as kind of a interesting structural thing that Marius does in this volume where I think he's, he's tying things together and he's doubling back on himself quite a bit. You know, there, there's very much a almost fugue sort of going on with some of the, some of the ideas he brings up, some of the historical examples that he mentions, and then he ties it back into something that happens later. Um, A notable one is that Heydrich, uh, the Nazi commander who was, um, I, I always feel weird referring to his assassination when it comes to the Nazis, because that almost <laughs> gives like this suggestion of like, I, I, I know there is no moral component to assassination, but for whatever reason, that's just sort of how it kicks around in my head. Anyway, who was killed by uh, a couple of uh, Czech partisans uh, that were trained by the Brits and armed by the U.S., in the first volume, they talk a little bit about how he died very painfully, that the there's a suggestion the bullets had been coated uh, in poison, possibly a, a botulism. And then in this volume, he brings that up again at one point, kind of on his on his reflections upon death and dying. But later on, Botox comes up in the novel, and he makes this very clear connection between Botox and injecting injecting a milder form into your face to um, smooth out wrinkles and hydric, which I think is just really, really clever. And I think just an example of kind of some of the things that he's that he's doing in this novel, because the bloodstain plays a similar similar role with some events later on in, in this volume. Yeah, I felt like the the Botox discussion, which is essentially a, a conversation with his wife by phone, Louisa, where he's saying, Hey, I just heard about this thing called Botox. And, you know, is it, is it really a thing? And do you know how it works and could it actually be a form of botulism? It, it felt, it felt a little dated <laughs> in today's world when Botox is just such a, you know, it's like getting a pedicure almost. It's so it's so common, it seems for so many people and so commonplace, but it's also like really quite a, an interesting literal visual for the whole project of the book, your face tomorrow, because of course, you know, People that uh, undergo Botox are essentially, you know, trying to defy the aging process. And so their face tomorrow might be, you know, very much not what you would have expected <laughs> their face tomorrow to be in, in thinking about what what type of uh, at least physical appearance th- that they would have. So, um, yeah, it's. It, Although it did seem a little dated to me, it, it also was was pretty clever the way that he kind of threaded that threaded that um, bit of bit of storyline and the history of Botox into the book. I think it also accomplishes two other things. Um, one is, and I realize that we're jumping like right into some not really really, really discussing plot at this point, but I, I was I was really so tickled by that. I just really wanted to get get to that part early. Um, but I think it does a really interesting job of expanding on Louisa. I mean, we get a much stronger sense, uh, I think, of 
Louisa, her sense of humor, and even just how the two of them, I mean, they didn't sound like an estranged couple in that conversation. They just sound like they were having a bit of a, a bit of a chat. And I mean, the book even opens with uh, Louisa and Deza uh, in conversation, just sort of talking and, and how Louisa is her own person. She isn't just this figment or this phantom of his past off in Madrid raising the kids. There's there's a lot of longing and pangs uh, that Deza is clearly experiencing and expressing in this volume that I'm not sure was quite there um, in the same way in the first volume. I really liked Louisa in, in this book, just like anything with Marias and particularly in this three volume project, Your Face Tomorrow. It is one simple telephone conversation, but it goes on and on for pages between Louisa and Deza. And I liked how straightforward and I liked her sense of humor, but at the same time, it made me a little sad because she was making all of these assumptions and like jokes with him about like, oh, so your new girlfriend is using Botox or, and there didn't seem to be, she seemed to be so casual and unpained about imagining him with another woman that it, it made me feel like, uh, you know, I don't know whether this, this relationship or this marriage can ever really be revitalized because it almost felt to me maybe Deza hasn't turned the page, but it felt like Louisa has. And I mean, that's kind of been the point of him being in London is to give the space for that to take place. But um, he spends a good bit of time uh, dwelling on the nature of, of living in another country and how you're not, it's a half-life. You're not really the same person you were in your home country or you're just your home city even i think you could extend it that way that until there's a dramatic reorientation towards it being where you live that this is your permanent place of residence that yeah it's 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 something a little bit more um phantasmal and and certainly in that conversation deza is trying to very quickly like move her away from those assumptions but like no i'm just curious and this story is really boring uh it's complicated I just, I just kind of want this information and I'm having a great time ch chatting with you, but there is, there is no one else. Whereas she was fine with that, but also, as you said, seemed totally fine with the idea that there is someone else and that he is trying to get some information about this new person in his life and where they may be coming from. The other thing that I think the, the Hadrick Botox thing does and really does in this novel I mean, I keep calling it novel. I'm trying to be very careful not to, because that's a thing I think we should talk about that it is volumes and it is like each one's a discrete volume, but they are one novel. And I think that actually plays into perhaps some of the things that um, you're disappointed about in this one. But I, I think it really plays and emphasizes Marius's considerations about time and how time works and how the mind works as, as it relates to time that Deza's, mind is such that he now has this information about Hadric and immediately makes the association with Botox and compresses these two very discrete things uh, taking place in wildly different circumstances into sort of, uh, oh, there, there, there's a bridge there that his, that his brain is forming. And there's a, a moment where he even reflects on the idea that, no, I'm, I'm presenting this thought as if it happened at the time, but it couldn't have happened at the time. I'm only now 
linking it back to it. Um, there's a very long, long as far as words go, scene that at the end of which we're told only took 10 minutes and it would have taken you probably three hours to read through that, <laughs> that, that whole exchange. But this is, and I think I said this in, in the first episode and if I haven't said it yet, um, when I saw Marius uh, do an event in New York, he was asked about why he writes like this. And his response was time does not give time the time to be. And I think that's really coming I think that comes into very sharp relief here that that's one of the things that he is, that he is playing with, that he is manipulating um, in terms of how his characters, how his character in this reacts, thinks, interacts. Um, and in some ways, how a lot of the folks who are part of Tuper's organization or adjacent to it uh, view the world. And we get the repetition here, even though it's not, it's not live, but, Deza's remembering, you know, that that quote by Wheeler that keeps coming up about history not being recountable insofar as something happens, an event, a situation, and you're never able to fully recount it to to remember or to retell it exactly the way it happened just because, you know, time and memory and all of that stuff. So, yeah, there's... There is, for lack of a better term, a bit meta in that way, insofar as there's a lot of explicit discussion about time, but then if you just look at how the prose works and the looping back and kind of the extenuation of scenes, like you said, the 10-minute scene that takes place in a bathroom, um, <laughs> a bathroom that um, our friend um, Bernie Tuper says is a bathroom for cripples, which I <laughs> it's the handicapped bathroom. But um, And then I thought it was interesting, too, that Days is even amazed about, like, the fact of a handicapped bathroom, as though, like, at that time in Spain, like, they never would have, like, especially dedicated a a bathroom to to handicap people and particularly one that wasn't quite quite uh, as spacious or or clean or nice or unused as as this space was in this um in this nightclub in this discotheque that they're at in uh in downtown london i also think Deza probably just doesn't pay attention to things like that sometimes you know like he isn't looking for it so he's not going to see it um, for someone who sees so well, he has some very interesting blind spots. I think, though, as well, he was he was commenting a bit on the on just the manners of of English people versus Spanish culture, because there's you know, there's a line out the door waiting for the women's room. And then there's this handicapped bathroom that um, no one's rude enough to just like go in there and use, even though it's never used, you know, um, they're all like follow following the rules, which um, feels uh, probably a, a bit unlatin to, uh, <laughs> to Deza. Well, especially considering what um, that bathroom gets used for yes. not, not a few minutes later. Let's do a little bit of the, the plotting in this one. Um, as we, I think we've given a nice taste of some of the things we're thinking about with it. But um, I'm going to be interested to see what you do with this because there's very little plot in this one, I feel. it's. I mean, it's only going to take me like a minute, although, <laughs> you know, uh, maybe it'll take me 20. So volume one ends with um, someone ringing Deza's uh, door and asking to come up and him inviting him up. But 
he has not indicated who it is. Uh, we find out um, pretty much immediately that it's uh, Perez Newix, his uh, colleague at the unremarkable unnamed building. Um, and she's there, and basically she's there to make an ask of him that he is going to, Deza is going to analyze someone in the next couple of days. And Perez Newix would very much like him not to disqualify him via his um, analysis. The particularities of who it is or what the ask is, like why this ask is in place, aren't gone into really. It actually goes more into who Tupra is, that Tupra can't believe that anyone is ever fully one thing. If someone is seems wholly good and completely honest and would always pay back their their loan, then they are fully kept then in Tupra's mind that they're untrustworthy because they're basically it's almost like a pendulum swing. They're a hundred percent going to go hard the other way at some point. And similarly, someone who is untrustworthy, Tupra would recommend that they be given um given a shot. So basically she wants uh Deza's analysis to put this guy somewhere in the middle such that Tupra won't out of hand dismiss him. And that's what the first 60 pages of this volume 70 and then it's just dropped like a hot potato like we don't really go back to it after that until like the last five pages right then it circle then it circles back in a bit i mean and there's quite a bit of reminiscing is the wrong way of putting it uh the book does begin with uh louisa and deza discussing uh helping a homeless Romanian mother and her two kids, which is tied into a discussion of what do we actually owe to one another? And if by helping someone, does that then make um, you beholden to them, not them beholden to you? A lot of this book, this volume is really kind of digging into almost a contractual view of society, of the, the various agreements, um, implicit, written, verbal, that we're all engaging in and with all the time. Um, it really comes across in terms of marriage, which makes sense for someone who's you know going through or the early stages of a divorce and a separation to kind of be thinking about the, the conditional nature uh, of that kind of a relationship. Yeah, I think that Deza um, refers to it at least the situation with Louisa and the 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 Roma woman outside the grocery store with the with the two little children as entanglements. Louisa became entangled with this woman because of the help that she provided her, and then um, and then it wasn't just you know one instance, but Louisa kept seeing this woman and provided her you know with additional help and became very sympathetic to the woman's plight and very affectionate with the youngest child of the woman. So um, Deza makes a comment that she's was she's now entangled. So this this woman, even if she even if she never sees her again, she, she's not going to she, she's going to be in Louisa's mind for quite a while. He also though, and this is another instance of him kind of uh, flushing out. Louisa as a uh, character. He also does suggest that he, Deza, is not at all concerned that Louisa would get dragged into anything too too far with this woman. That she has that Louisa has a clear enough sense of basically of herself, of what she can give, what she is willing to give, and what lines she's willing to establish that it wouldn't go 
further than is necessary or perhaps prudent, which is, is, is interesting for someone who, I mean, we don't know all, we don't know the nature of the divorce, like what's really driving it or pushing it forward. And that phone conversation makes it sound like they can get along just fine. So what exactly is it that's, uh, that's pushed it in this direction is a little unclear at this point. So following the, the evening chatting with Perez Nuix, Deza is taken to a nightclub by Tupra. I mean, there's a lot of prithies about how they function within the organization and that there will be socialization periods where Tupra wants them to all go out together and that sort of thing. But the, the main thrust is that what comes next is Deza is assigned to come with Tupra now uh, this evening operating under, under the name um, Rarezevi. Am I pronouncing that right? I never know. It's such a weird one. It is, a, it is a weird name. It's one of Tupper's aliases. And yeah, I'm not quite sure the proper way to pronounce it either. But you keep calling him Tupra, but this evening he, he's Rarisby. Um And Deza is there to, um, to do two things. One, to um, assist in any uh, translation issues. The gentleman that Tupra is talking to, um, Minoya, is Italian, and that's one of Deza's languages. And also Deza is to keep the, the man's wife happy, Flavia, that... And in Tupra's analysis, she is someone that wants the attention and wants the compliment, but she doesn't want anything beyond that. She's not someone that's going to step out of her marriage or any of those things, but she she very much is desirous of that sort of thing. And if you can offer her that um, and know that that is uh, as far as it's going to go, uh, attention and some kind words and some fun, then... She's going to be happy, which is going to keep the husband happy, which is going to serve their purposes for the evening. I think that Atupra says it in, in quite a, an interesting way, that she's someone that, that constantly requires a lot of grooming and a lot of flattery because she is unable to cope with her inevitable physical, he calls it decay, but, but decline. She's an aging woman. And... She's a woman that is vain and she wants to act and look like a much younger woman. And she's attractive, according to, to Deza, you know, even though an, an older woman. But he I, seems to do a very good job of, of keeping her entertained and, and flattered, at least initially. Up to a point. Also, in describing uh, the husband, there's a hell of a line here. Um, he had more more the look of a Roman, or rather Vatican, mafioso, than of a Sicilian or Calabrian or Neapolitan one. The large glasses. The glasses of a rapist or a hardworking civil servant, <laughs> or both, for they are not mutually exclusive types. What the <laughs> <laughs> like that is such a <laughs> statement and like jamming those two things in together was just um that it's just I don't know. I, I I love reading Maria's for all sorts of reasons, but it's those sorts of like where you just sort of like stop and laugh. It's just so Yes, you'll never look at a um a large glasses wearing civil servant the same way again. No, no. Absolutely not, especially at the DMV. Um, <laughs> so they go to dinner. They then go to a disco afterwards, and that's going perfectly fine. She wants to dance. So there is a, I mean, it seems like a 
fairly active club, um, but the music kind of downshifts a bit. And so Deza takes her out on the dance floor and sees someone waving, trying to get his attention and wave him down. Dressed, he thinks, like a someone trying to dress like they do, they do hip hop or that they're a professional boxer or I mean, there there's some interesting assumptions going on there in terms of that. But it's De La Garza, who we met, who we met back at the party, who is, I guess they called it peacocking at one point, dressing like in an incredibly, frankly, bizarre for him way. He has like a hairnet on that he doesn't have enough hair to fill up. So it just sort of flops loose. There's this real sense of almost a clown when that comes across. But um, De La Garza comes over and starts talking to him and is uh, very interested in dancing with and hitting on Flavia and wants to pay her attention. And, and Deza gets called back to the table to do some translation work and kind of keeps an eye on, just attempting to keep an eye on things, as is Tupra. Tupra is clearly not, doesn't give it much away, but is clearly not thrilled that De La Garza has just shown up. And then after a few minutes of checking in every so often, uh, De La Garza and Flavia go over to a table that's full of Spaniards. Uh, Deza gets sucked into a bit of a, there's just a few words he's not 100% sure on. The Italian gentleman, the, the glasses-wearing man, um, gets very flustered and frustrated. So he doesn't check in on them for like 20 seconds, and they're gone. And that's not great. So Deza is sent to find him, find the two of them, make sure they haven't taken off, that nothing truly untoward has happened. I don't think Tupra thinks that anything really wrong is happening. It's just a, fun- a question of how this works for his plans for the evening. Tupra is one that is... And this is discussed with Perez Nuix, is very decisive in his reading and his decisions behind it. He wants them to question and question each other and throw out hypotheticals. And But he is the one that makes the decision. And when he decides, he's quite certain that he has, he has read correctly. All right, Deza goes to, checks the bathrooms, has an interesting exchange in the ladies' room. And then comes back to the dance floor, and he and Tupra then together kind of scan the dance floor and identify them. Tupra goes over and takes Flavia back to her husband. Deza tells uh, De La Garza to join him in the accessible bathroom for a hit of coke. Tupra then shows up a few minutes later, uh, proceeds, and then proceed after giving something that looks like cocaine. It's never snorted, so we don't know if it has any effects or if it's talk, which Deza throws out there. While De La Garza is attempting uh, to make a couple lines for himself on the toilet seat, Cooper comes up behind him holding a sword. And and a big-ass sword. Like a big sword. One that Deza recognizes. And I think like the German translation for it is cut, a cat gutter or something like that. Um, and Tupra like repeatedly brings it down towards De La Garza's neck, always stopping just like a hair's breadth away. But does that like two or three times, leans the sword against the wall, and then walks back up to um, De La Garza um, in the in the cubicle, um, lifts up the toilet seat and plunges De La Garza's face into it. And altern- repeatedly. repeatedly alternates between um, half drowning him and like working his ribs over and just going to town on the guy. And after that's all done with, um, Tupra tidies himself up, has Deza translate instructions to De La Garza that De La Garza is to stay in there for 40 minutes. He's not, that he's never to talk about this. Um, there's, 
a really great line about about him staying quiet. Keep quiet and don't say a word, not even to save yourself. Keep quiet and save yourself. Which is just a really creepy thing to say to someone that you just threatened with a sword and half drowned and beat the hell out of. But that's about where we're at with uh, Tupra. But didn't it remind you of the careless talk? Yeah, very much so, right? So they then leave. They go back to the table. Tupra finishes his his negotiations, his conversation. And then as they're exiting, Deza takes Flavia with him. And Tupra and uh, Manoia go to the bathroom. Um, that's what Deza is assuming, just to check in. I think basically to show Manoia what he did. And I think solidify that, hey, this guy stepped out of line. I took care of him for you. And so our talks can absolutely continue, that sort of thing. Tupra drives everyone home, then drives, and as he's driving Deza home, who's last, they have a conversation in the car. And at the end of that conversation, Tupra decides that they actually aren't done yet and that Deza needs to go home with him, that they have some more things to talk about. And there are some videos that Tupra wants uh, Deza to see. And that is how this volume ends. Deza's reaction to Tupra and the violence that he inflicts upon De La Garza, um, I think is really interesting because it's clear Deza doesn't really trust Tupra. And he thinks that Tupra is quite capable, not just physically, but also mentally um, and constitutionally to kill De La Garza. And he actually thinks that he's going to kill him. And then also just this discussion that they have on the way home where Deza is saying, what the hell, dude? You know, like, where did this wacky sword come from? And why why were you, like, brandishing about and, you know, acting like you were going to kill De La Garza? And then Super kind of goes into this soliloquy about how how powerful a factor fear can be but that, <laughs> and I found this kind of amusing because uh, I wasn't quite so sure for myself, but that people have become accustomed or expectant of more typical weapons like short knives or guns. But when you like brandish this kind of crazy big sword <laughs> at people that no one uses anymore, that that is a really the most effective way to instill fear on someone because um, they just don't know how to react to it. And clearly, neither De La Garza nor, nor Deza knew how to react to this sword. There's a... <laughs> We're about to tie this into a couple movies, but there's... Um, you've seen Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, uh, Guy Ritchie. I have, okay. yes. When they're planning the... When the friends are planning their heist, um, their chef friend, who is the straightest of all of them, having a real job and all that, they're discussing what kind of like weapons they should bring. And he goes, and knives. Knives because they're quiet. And they're like, why knives? Because they're quiet and because they tell them that we know what we're doing. And everyone goes... That's scary, dude. Like, where did this come from out of you, of all people? But I kind of thought about that as I, I was reading it. But when asked about 
why why a sword would occur to him or why this idea of fear is being such a, a powerful tool, he actually ties it back to uh, the Cray brothers, the Cray twins, who were uh, East End gangsters in the 50s and 60s, but like celebrity gangsters. I mean, the, I think the Rolling Stones hung out at their at their clubs. And um, Tupra mentions the film The Craze that came out in the early 90s or 1990 or something. And it had the uh, Kemp brothers in the uh, lead roles um, who were from Spandau Ballet, which is weird and kind of a, a neat well like i mean deza says he's never seen it of course marius has seen it he probably also like celebrates spandau ballet's entire like catalog you know like i mean he just throws these things i do out. i love spandau ballet give me true and gold and all of that so if you haven't seen have you seen the craze i've not i actually saw it as a kid um my parents made interesting movie choices for us uh but uh it's good i i, I mean my memory of it is it's quite good. Um, there's a recent telling of it called Legend that had Tom Hardy playing uh, both roles. But yeah, they had this mythical status and they ruled by fear. They would show up with really big knives, swords, and they would just do it in the middle of the street. Like they made sure that everyone knew that they came for them, that it would be brutal. Whoever came after them may not make it out and the reprisal would be swift and terrifying. And that's how they were able to build the empire they did and control as much as they did. And that's the, that's the lesson that Tupra took from them, which quickly leads to uh, Deza. And mind you, this is like the last 20 ish pages uh, of the volume, that this is all happening in. I mean, we're getting a lot of movement and a lot of discussion between two people in somewhat real time. Then we've gotten the, almost the entire rest of, of it at this point. But Deza is wondering, what did you ask, ask Tupra, what did you study at uh, Oxford? Like, all right, you're, you're pulling lessons from the craze. What else, what else do you have up, up your sleeve? And you got, and Deza's response is, uh, I read medieval history, which I guess actually makes a certain amount of sense in terms of that idea of ruling by fear and ruling via the sword. Yeah, by far. Um, and maybe this, this is, part of my disappointment with, with this volume, um, is that, you know, this is like a 330 page book, 200 pages of it happen in the disco with, with De La Garza. And I just thought it was, it was a bit much. I, I was entertained by De La Garza in the first volume, um, by his, you know, obnoxiousness and by his just following, Deza around and speaking to him in Spanish, assuming that no one else could understand all of these crude and rude comments that he was making about the women and getting with that woman and look at the legs on that one and et cetera. But this just seemed, I, well, first of all, I guess unrealistic. Like I, it was hard for me to believe that someone working at the Spanish embassy in London could conduct themselves in public like this and keep a job because I mean, it was just acting like a total buffoon on the dance floor and off the dance floor the entire night that he was there. But then also just, just annoying. I mean, I just thought that it went, it just, it just went too, too long and was exaggerated. Yeah. I mean, it definitely had a strange feel to it. I mean, I think what makes, especially in the, the, 
uh, party scene at Wheeler's house, what makes De La Garza amusing there is that they sort of the point counterpoint and that Deza can lose him occasionally, but then see what he's doing across the room. And there's also just, I don't know, there's a certain structure to that. We kind of know what's going to happen at Wheeler's house on a certain level. So like, it, it, it doesn't... It doesn't feel as strange and it's certainly not as heightened an, an environment as what, I mean, why the hell are they at this disco to begin with? I mean, my assumption was simply because it's noisy and loud and the conversation can be had with no one able to record it or listen in on it between Manoia and Tupra, but it just felt like a very, I don't know, it felt strange for them to be there, certainly. And it is, if there is a weakness to what Marius does. I do think it's that he can um, weave in and out a little bit too much, really break away from the momentum of his plot in some pretty significant ways so that it's all the more jarring when he drops you back into the action and it makes it feel, especially when what he's recounting, um, what Deza is recounting is, you know, conversations with his father about the civil war and then suddenly you're dropped back into the accessible bathroom in a discotheque with a guy on the ground you know struggling to breathe like it's just there is a larger thematic point there but in terms of in terms of the reader's experience of it yeah it can it can certainly not work i guess in the first volume um you know the the big 200 page digression was Deza uh, up all night at Peter Wheeler's house after the party, you know, rifling through Wheeler's books, trying to find, you know, the connection that Wheeler had with the Spanish Civil War, and then, you know, digging up all of these other interesting facts about Andres Nin and, and you know, different, different things about that, that period of time historically. And to me, that worked. I wasn't, even though he was, he was learning, you know, learning all of these things, throwing all these facts that at least I wasn't aware of onto the page at the same time that he's remembering back conversations that he had with his dad about the, the, uh, the friend of the father who, spread disinformation and, and got his father jailed. And, you know, I, I just felt like thematically that that all worked and was, was good and interesting, but this just protracted scene at the club, I just, and I think you're right. Part of it was, I mean, he tells us that Tupra was obviously a regular at this club that, you know, everyone knew him and, um, you know, the staff knew him and, you know, took care of him and got him a seat and, and referred to him, you know, by his alias. So maybe that's why they were there, but it just did seem like, uh, you know, uh, why, why would, why would you pick this place to, to go? Especially when, you know, this, this guy that you're, that you're trying to get cooperation from Manoa is like not, not a young man and certainly doesn't seem to be entertained by the dancing. Maybe it was just as a, for a diversion for the wife. I, I don't know. I don't think I reacted as, I mean, on the second reading, I don't think I reacted as strongly against it as, um, as perhaps you did, but I definitely don't 
it definitely felt more out of place than a lot of the other. And, and also there's the pacing in this one. I like, I do like this one a lot. I think it also, and we'll get to this in a second. I think it makes even more sense after the final volume. Like I think, I, I think it's really tricky. I mean, there's no way to do it because it's such a big novel if you treat it as a whole. But I was even kind of taking a glance at some of the reviews at the time. And it's tricky to kind of handle this one because it is the middle piece of this larger work. So while Fever and Spear are setting a lot of things up and has a certain arc to it, neither one of these is a, is a finished arc, at least not by how Marius is constructing it. And this definitely seems to have that sort of a middle of the trilogy feel to it, where it's um, building off the first one, but setting up the last the last bit and... Oh, the pacing, the pacing just feels a little weird. I, I don't know. Like it definitely, it definitely seems to kind of um, speed up, slow down in some ways that don't always feel uh, perfectly, uh, perfectly tuned. I was really hoping that Tupra would decapitate De La Garza because I okay. sure don't want to see De La Garza I in knew volume that three. Was actually your, that, I knew it. I knew that that was what you were actually upset about, that De La Garza wasn't simply like <laughs> rubbed out, written out of the novel, written out of all future like possibilities. You never want to see this dude again. I, I know, you know, Lori, there's a whole bit at the end of this one where they're working through who can and can't kill. Days I was thinking through who, who in his life could kill or under what circumstances or would not. And he very much puts himself in the category of capable of killing and his wife in the capable of not killing. Um, Peter Wheeler, he says could kill. And, but Toby Ryland says couldn't, or at least he couldn't wartime, which I think is a really interesting uh, temperament distinction between um, the two brothers. But uh, yeah, you're throwing your hat in the ring with the, uh, the killers, I suppose there, at least, at least, um, on the page you you're, you're happy to kill your darlings or or your clowns as it were Me- mentally mentally i i want him dead yes yeah. well i'm not going to tell you if he shows up again or not you might you might no. be in luck we'll see do not do not tell me i think it's worth digging in a little bit into the conversation that deza has with his father juan i mean it's it takes up a good what is about 40 50 pages the the conversations with Juan, it's hearkening back to the the conversation, not quite as much, I don't think, uh, in the first volume with his dad, um, and his father is giving it like even more detail of what the war was like and what the consequences the war were for people for how they moved through the world, but also even how how Daisy's parents decided like how they decided to raise the kids, what, what they needed to know, what they weren't going to let them know what they would have to find out on their own. I think he spends enough time on that and it's pulling together a very contrary perspective to how Tupra sees the world. Yeah. I think that what was, I mean, an interesting takeaway for me was just realizing how much this had to have been a decision point for all of the parents that had children, you know, post Franco. Um, I don't know whether it's still a decision point, but I'm that certainly when this book is to take place and when Des is a child, you know, his father 
says to him as an adult, we, we could have just told you everything that happened, all of the gruesome details, but we didn't want you to grow up with, with fear and suspicion and paranoia. We, we didn't want to burden you with looking at humanity that way. And so we decided just to not tell you for the most part um, until you were much older and you started asking questions. And you just have to think that that was, that was a decision that, that so many families had to, had to make. Yeah, Juan goes into it a little bit saying, it seemed to us that it wasn't something we could tell our children, still less explain. It wasn't explicable even to ourselves who had witnessed it from start to finish. There hadn't been enough time for us to begin to forget. And besides, though still all too fresh in our minds, the regime made sure of that. There was never any process of psychological healing, no attempt at assuagement. The regime showed a consistent and thoroughly totalitarian lack of generosity, which was evident in every order and every sphere of life. But then he also follows that up on the very next page with the tendency today is to enclose children in a bubble of foolish happiness and false security by not bringing them into contact, even with the mildly disquieting, by keeping them ignorant of fear or even of its existence. Indeed, I understand that nowadays you can buy and that some people actually give or read to these to their children censored, doctored or saccharine versions of classics like Grimm or Perot or Anderson, stripped of all the darkness and cruelty of anything that's threatening and sinister and probably with all the upsets and deceptions removed. So, I mean. He's reflecting on the fact that, like, they were traumatized, the, these parents. So, and there was absolutely no attempt or no interest by the government to deal with any of this. I mean, the Franco's regime was perfectly happy to be a totalitarian regime. They were perfectly happy to make sure that the folks that fought against them never forgot that they lost. There's a whole thing about Real Madrid being um, Franco's favorite team, which is why they won all the time, which isn't entirely true, but that sort of, but that sort of thing was, and that was partially because Barcelona was the counterpoint. And as the Catalan club and the Catalan nationalist club, it was going to, it was of course going to be set up, you know, in opposition to, to Real and a lot of people's um, hearts and minds. But at the same time, one doesn't think children should be coddled, that there is, that there is a place for kids to learn and to understand and to see that the world isn't all, isn't entirely sunny. And that fear, which is, Tupra's thing, fear is real and fear is something that you should be aware of and have contact with such that you can you can deal with it, I think, is part of what, what he's getting at. But on the very next page, he also begins to talk about what you're told and how he recounts he recounts the things that he's seen, the bombardments, the bodies, all sort all of that. But what really sticks with him that he relates to his son is a militia woman describing murdering a rich family and picking up the baby from the crib and smashing its head against the wall. Um, but also a story that's told to him after the war um, that answers for him. I mean, a friend of his disappeared and he knew he was dead, but he hears how his friend was killed, how his friend was murdered and it was brutal and it was awful and he was tortured before he died. But what Juan says to his son is like, I saw things, but the things that stuck with me the most were the things that were told to me, the things that, you know, the things that I'm passing on to you are the things I heard. The words and the stories that were formed around that are what carries such weight. I mean, the narrative as such. And that's certainly, that's certainly been a huge part of what Marius has grappled with and dealt with in his, in his novels. I think, especially with what Tupra says towards the end, which is what I think convinces him that he and um, Deza need to have a longer conversation, that 
Deza suggests that you can't just go around beating people up or slicing people's heads off in bathrooms. And Tuber's very short response is, why? Why can't you do that? I mean, Tuber has certainly has an understanding of society and its rules and mores as something that's really optional, <laughs> or at the bare minimum, highly flexible. But I would think that um, for Tupra, it's much more of a as you, know, as you please. And Juan is someone who lived through a time when all of those rules went right out the window. I mean, he, he existed in a period where s- social structure completely altered and things that would otherwise be unacceptable, bashing a baby's head against a wall, uh, became celebrated by some people who, after the war, he might be having you know dinner in the same restaurant with. Yeah, I think that um, I, I am looking forward to beginning um, volume three, which I have not yet, because yeah, I want to see how this conversation continues because it is this this it seems to be right now set up as a, a stark moral difference that Chuper obviously believes that that violence in some instances other than direct self-defense is justified and and days is not there at least not yet and so yeah i am looking forward to the continuation of that conversation and i'm also looking forward to how the first volume ended and this one started and figuring out like what what's going to happen with this this friend this acquaintance of Paris Nunes and and you know how Des is going to interpret this person for the purposes of either you know recommending or not recommending <laughs> him or her to uh to Tupra and and why and why this is important so there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of threads that are dangling like you know little cliffhangers out there that I'm that I'm looking forward to. And of course, which I've said <laughs> in the previous recording, I really want to know what happened to Wheeler's wife. So um, um, that's the main one that I'm looking for uh, in the final and concluding volume. Yeah, again, I'm, I'm, I, I, I ain't telling you nothing on that one, which good, is not, which, which neither confirms nor denies. I want to make that very clear. I'm not suggesting there is. I'm just not going to say anything. I think before we wrap up, uh, I think Dance and Dream is uh, a far clearer in this one as uh, titles for the parts than um, Fever and Spear may have been. Though I think I think he kind of answers that a bit on the Fever point. And he does directly, Deza does kind of directly um, confirm your suggestion in the last episode that the Fever in some ways was referring to the night he spent ripping through the... Uh, ripping through the library. And he does actually refer to that evening as, as a feverish experience. And he does use different phrases about fever and spear and dreaming and sleeping throughout this volume. I mean, they're at a discotheque and everyone's dancing, which is clearly part of it, but it's also certainly the dance of, I think the, the social interactions, the, you know, the, the conversation with Louisa in some ways was a dance, you know, a movement forward, a movement back. And there is certainly a very strange dreamlike quality to the next part, pulling in the conversation with his father. Uh, a, a lot of it sort of, I think, has that that sort of ungrounded feel to it, which in some ways is, un, is unusual for Marius. I think a lot of his stuff, even when it gets into like when he's knocking around some 
three page long sentences and some um, high minded philosophy, it's still quite grounded in what the person is doing in the moment. And I think here it's a little bit more unmoored. I think it's it's going in some in some other directions uh, than than he's done before. I'm also looking forward. To, I think at the end of the next episode, we'll spend some time kind of reflecting on what we've read of Marius. But uh, yeah, I really do think this is this is something of, of a summation of what he'd done in the first part of his career, and that everything that came after was him moving into a different direction. Yeah, that will be that will be really kind of interesting to kind of think of things. And what we've read together in retrospect, because we've read a lot of it. <laughs> we've read a lot of Moraes, and some of it was a reread for me. A lot of it was a first read. Almost all of it was it was 100% enjoyable, and it reaffirms, you know, the confidence that I have at the store in putting these putting Marias's novels in people's hands. Because, well, I've I've experienced the feedback, and it's always wonderful. He's just such a damn good writer and and very intriguing in the way he brings up a lot of these moral questions. Um, it's not it's not your typical kind of moral conundrum that you know so many novels just you know repeat and repeat um, from previous novels or things that people have read. I mean this he he, he sets up very unique situations, I think, in which to test his character's morality. Absolutely. Um, and I think before we go, we would be remiss if we did not bring up your favorite character from the first volume, who makes an appearance in the second volume, The Dancing Man Across the The Dancing way. Man, yes. When you were talking about dancing, I was thinking of The Dancing Man because, yes, he is he is in this one as well. Um, up there in his flat, dancing around with his his two lady friends. So yeah, I'm I'm sure he's going to be in the third one doing the same. Well, and we'll, and, and this one, um, Deza starts dancing himself. He hears the music. Uh, there's a lot of talk about music in this volume. I'm mean, not just because of the discotheque, but other other songs. But he hears the music and he starts dancing and he has the lights on. So he eventually looks up and realizes they've. They're dancing just like he is. And when he stops, they wait for him to come join the party. And what does Deza do? He closes the windows and turns off the lights and sits in the darkness because he cannot possibly go across the way. Yeah, he they have their window open. And so he hears what music they're dancing to. And he realizes he's got the same music. And so he turns it on and starts dancing kind of with them, but, you know, across the street from them. But yeah, unfortunately... He just needs to be a little more fun, I think, you know? I think, I think so, too. Dancing with the neighbor sounds a lot more fun than hanging out in the accessible bathroom um, with De La Garza to me. I, I, I would agree with that. So maybe in part, <laughs> may, maybe in part three, he, uh, he joins the party. But we, we, will, we will find out and we'll report back next week. All right. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Lori.